the church I serve in uh, Toronto, the People's Church, has an origin that may be of interest to you in the light of it being a global missions conference. It was founded by a man called Oswald Smith. And Oswald Smith felt God had called him to the mission field. And uh, he applied to six missionary societies, all of whom turned him down on the grounds of his health because he was quite frail and uh, had a number of physical issues. After being turned down six times, he coined a phrase that said, if you can't go, send a substitute. And he started the People's Church for the express purpose of sending people to the mission field. And uh, over the years, uh, the People's Church has become one of the strongest mission-sending churches in North America, if not more widely. Uh, there was a book published recently called The Ten Most Influential Churches in the World. And uh, then there's the second section, the 11 uh, next, or the next 10 or something, 11 to 20, uh, which was just a page each. And uh, we featured in the second section, the 11 to 20, on the grounds of the mission influence that the People's Church had. Um, Oswald Smith, by the way, the people who turned him down on the grounds of his health weren't very good in the prophetic area because he lived till he was 96. But uh, he coined what he called faith promise giving, where every missions conference, we have a, we have a, a three-week, four-Sunday missions conference every year. And during that time, we invite people to commit what they'll give over the next 12 months in order to uh, uh, give to missions. It's not a cash offering. It's on paper. It's not a pledge. It's between you and God and uh, give over the years. And actually, two Sundays ago, we had the 90th anniversary of the People's Church. I wasn't there. I was in England two Sundays ago. But uh, one of the documents they produced on this aspect uh, said that over the 90 years, uh, more than $200 million have been given to missions. And so we, we thank God for that uh, influence. And uh, I came in under the, under the influence of that ministry that's been running now for the last 90 years. But uh, missions is still the primary interest, both locally and globally. I think there's a, a company, a Japanese, uh, one of the car manufacturers talk about local and global. They've coined a word called glocal. <laughs> and uh, we're interested in glocal missions, <laughs> which is what you're interested in here, the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So uh, just that by way of, of background and, and uh, my own involvement in, in a church that is fully committed uh, to mission strategy and mission involvement around the world. But just going back to Matthew chapter 9, uh, for this last of these sessions, we have one tomorrow, which will be a, a different thing, Sunday morning. But uh, just reading again to remind you, when he saw the crowds, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, it's just the workers that are few. 
ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And the two key words I've given you already is the word vision. When he saw the crowds, we need to be people who open our eyes and look. As Jesus said to the disciples after they'd missed the woman of Samaria, as we saw last night, open your eyes and look, the fields are right. Vision leads to compassion. That our motivation is love, not obligation, but love and care and compassion for people. But then the third word is that having said that to the disciples, Jesus then said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. And the third key word is intercession. King James Bible says, pray, therefore. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore. Not just praying for people, that's not the context here, but asking the Lord of the harvest, the one who knows exactly where the people are, whose hearts have been uh, awakened, whose hearts are ripe, ask him to put you in the right place with the right people at the right time. I learned this through the frustration of trying my best to reach people for the gospel. Uh, any sense of discernment, you know, who is it in whose hearts God is at work? When I was in my... Uh, mid-teens. A friend and I got very excited about the gospel. We'd grown up in a Christian church, but we'd been converted before, but now got excited about it. And uh, we got a team of four of us together to try and reach the young people in the city that we lived in, in the west of England, a place called Hereford, where the cattle come from, but you Americans call them Herefords, uh, but they're actually Herefords. And uh, uh, we grew up in Hereford, and in those days, young people used to hang out in coffee bars. So we devised a questionnaire. We'd go into these coffee bars and say, would you mind uh, answering some questions? And things like, what's your favorite soccer team? Uh, which bands do you listen to? Uh, what's your main ambition in life? How do you hope to reach that ambition? Who do you think Jesus Christ was? Why do you think he died? And before long, we're having a conversation about the gospel, similar to the kind of thing we just heard uh, in the last hour. And uh, we chatted to lots of folks, and there were folks who made some response, but very few who really stuck. This got a bit discouraging to us. We got permission to preach on the street, the local uh, authorities, and they said, as long as you don't cause a disturbance and block the street, you can do that. So on a Saturday afternoon, we went to preach. On the we were 16, 17, and 18 years of age between us. I was 16. And um, we devised a few skits. For instance, one guy would go about 50 meters in this direction, 50 yards in this direction, and the other one would stand here. And so this guy down here would shout, fire! Well, you shout that in a crowd, and everybody stops and looks around. And so the first, whoever, whichever one it was of us who used to change places, up here would say, where is it? And he'd shout back, it's in hell. Who's it for? It's for all these people out here. How are they going to escape? Meanwhile, we're walking towards each other. They've got to come to Jesus. You see, and you've got a bit of a crowd going by then. I wouldn't recommend this as a, a way of doing it. And we had several skits like that. And then we would, uh, and we learned to preach. We, learned, we all went into full-time ministry and we learned to preach on the street. I think it's the best place to learn to preach. If you preach in a congregation, everybody's polite. 
They sit there, get comfortable, they look at you and they you know, doze, the minds go a million miles away. But um, on the street, they don't do that. On the street, you've got to hold people and we would, we, we would compete with each other. You know, is that guy listening for seven minutes? Yeah, but I, somebody listened for eight minutes when I was talking, you know. And you'd kind of like that uh, kid about how, how do you get people to listen? And uh, we all learned to speak to people who didn't want to listen. That's the best way to learn to preach. Um, we started preaching little churches and chapels around the area uh, where somebody came to us one day and said, would you young men come and take a service in our church? We don't have many people on. We don't have a pastor. And so we went to do so. By the time I was 18, we were preaching every Sunday somewhere in, in the area around where we lived. And it was a great experience. But problem was, we began to realize that very few people were actually coming to Christ. There were one or two. And of those who did, not many seemed to stick. And we thought, well, is it, we're not using the wrong method. What's, what's the problem? And then I went to Capenary Bible School, which was a year-long discipleship kind of course. Of course, that time, all the students went on a 10-day outreach into different cities in England. And I was based in Manchester with a team. And uh, we were going from door to door to try and engage people with the gospel and people weren't interested and slamming the door in our faces. We tried to have some youth events in the evening, but no youth came to them. And we were really, really discouraged. And we had a meeting every morning. We got together with different teams who were in the same city and we, we, we gave a report and I gave a report because I was leading my team. One morning I said, you know, everything we've done has been discouraging. People slam the door on our faces. Nobody's interested. No youth come to the youth meeting. There's some little old ladies came to the youth meeting to encourage us, but that drove away the real youth because they looked at the door and didn't like the fact that they were there and thought they were in the wrong place, etc. And I, I thought about this. Anybody, any of you know the name Stuart Briscoe? Stuart Briscoe is a well-known preacher. Stuart was leading the Bible school. And when I finished, he got up and he said, you know, some of you are really encouraged. Some of you are discouraged, like me, Charles. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, but don't be encouraged, overly encouraged, don't be overly discouraged. He said, our job is not to run around trying to find as many people as we can and sort of twist their arms to Christ. Our task is to be available to the Lord Jesus Christ that he might put us in the right place with the right people at the right time whose hearts have been prepared. I don't know if he read from Matthew chapter 9. He, he may have done, but certainly it would have fitted where Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to put workers into the harvest field. So there is a harvest field, and you don't know where it is, but there is someone who does. He's called the Lord of the harvest. That's an analogy. There's a farmer who knows where the ripe crops are on his farm. So you ask the Lord of the harvest to put you, not anywhere and everywhere, but put you in the harvest field where the people are ripe. Now, I can't remember if Stuart talked about it from this particular verse, but that was the gist of it. And I'd never heard anybody talk about that before. And I, I got sort of excited. I thought, this is, this is remarkable. Um, so when my team got together, 
that afternoon, we're doing our work, we said, you know, we heard this morning that uh, there's a harvest field, so we don't know where it is, but there are people in whose hearts God is at work. We don't know who they are. Lord, put us in the right place with the right people this afternoon. And we set off with a new wave of enthusiasm, went to the first door. I was with a Swiss student, the two of us together. We kind of knocked on the door because that's what we were doing and, and, and uh, wanting to engage people in conversation. And there was nobody at the first door, nobody at the second door, nobody at the third door. Somebody opened the door by fourth or fifth, and then they shut it in our faces because they weren't interested. And by the end of the afternoon, I was really discouraged again. I thought, oh, man, it's all very well for people like Stuart Briscoe to stand up and say things like that. But it doesn't actually work in real life. So we started to go back to where we were staying because we had to have some dinner before we had a meeting that night. And as we were walking along, we walked past a, a public house. That's what you call a bar here. We call it a public house. And we walked, walked past this public house. And as we did so, I felt a desire to go in. Now, I, I normally don't. Uh, and uh, I said to the student, um, why don't we go and sit in this bar for a little while? He said, we've got to be back for the meal, which is true. I said, yeah, you're right. So we walked on a bit, but I felt it very strongly. So I, I said, I'm going to go back. I'll join you later. Went back, went into this bar. I bought a glass of Coca-Cola, promise you. And uh, I sat down by myself and thought, now what in the world am I doing here? I looked around. There was a guy about my age, about 20, sitting on a table by himself. He had a mug of beer, picked it up to drink it. And as he did so, his hand would shake and put it down again. And he looked really, really upset. And I thought, that guy looks really upset. So I plucked up my courage and my Coca-Cola, and I walked over, I pulled out a chair at his table and said, uh, hi, do you mind if I talk to you a minute? He said, sure. I said, uh, you look as though you're upset. He said, upset? I said, yes. I noticed, you know, you seem to be shaking and you look upset. He said, no, I'm always like this. And I suddenly felt a fool had some nervous disorder of some kind, and here's me, a stranger, saying, you're upset. And I said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I apologize for that. Um, what I really want to know is, do you know very much about Jesus at all? He said, Jesus, no, I don't. I said, well, I think you should know something. He said, what do you think I should know? So we talked a little while. And uh, after he said, look, it's time to go. He had to be somewhere. So I gave him a little booklet. I had in my, that I had with me called Becoming a Christian by John Stott. I wrote my telephone number in the back, the place where I was staying, and I said, now, if you want to contact me, uh, contact me, I'd love to hear from you, and off he went. So I went off, went back to where I was staying, and I thought, hey, what's going to happen? He's going to read this book, he's going to come to Christ, he's going to call me tonight. Well, actually, no, sorry. Uh, there's more to the story than that, and I just missed out an important part. After we talked for a while, he said to me, actually, I am, he, he told me that, uh, uh, no, I'll tell you this in a minute when I come back to it, okay? Let's get the sequence right. <laughs> I haven't told this story for a long time. <laughs> uh, I thought, he, he's going he's gonna to call tonight, uh, but he didn't. There was no phone call. And about three days later, I was walking down the same street, and uh, this young guy crossed the road, uh, and I saw him running across the road, and I said, that's the guy who I talked to in that public house. And he ran straight up to me. 
put his hand to me. He said, I'm so happy now. And I said, why? He said, uh, let me tell you what's really been going on. I've been out of work for 12 months. And my father told me that I was lazy and I wasn't getting a job because I wasn't looking properly. And he said, if you don't have a job in 12 months, we're going to kick you out of the house. He said, those 12 months were up three days ago. I didn't think he meant it, but he did. And he told me to leave and not come back till I have a, had a job. And so when you came into that public house and I was sitting there with my beer, I was upset. I didn't want to talk about it. I was upset because I couldn't believe my father would throw me out like that. He said, when I left, I went to a friend's house who I hoped he would put me up for the night, and he did. I went to bed. I couldn't sleep. I was so angry. He said, so I got up, and I had nothing else to read, so I read the book that you gave me. And uh, when I read it, he said it made sense. He said, what you said didn't, but this did. And uh, at the end of it, there was a prayer, so I prayed the prayer, and uh, I went to sleep. I got up the next morning, two days ago. I prayed the prayer again. Uh, and uh, then I said, God, if you are real, if you're alive, if, you, if th this is true, please help me to find a job. Show me by helping me to find a job. And he said, and you wouldn't believe this. I said, I probably would. He said, I got a job yesterday. I started work today. They just sent me out to get something. And I saw you on the other side of the road, so I ran across to tell you. I just about leapt over the guy. And he said, so what's the matter with you? I said, I'm, listen, I've been looking for people like you for a long time. And three days ago, I said, God, there must be somebody here whose heart is ripe. I don't know who they are, but you do. And I said, in circumstances that were totally unusual, I ended up coming to this pub, sitting with you, talking with you. And uh, I learned the principle that day. That guy eventually migrated to Australia. I've lost contact with him now. But I learned a principle that day, which I then discovered was in the scripture. It is not my job to run around trying to find as many as I possibly can, but to be, allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct, to bring us to the right people at the right time, in the right place, in whose heart the Spirit of God has already been at work. And you go to uh, Acts chapter 8, for instance, in the New Testament, and uh, You've got the instant there where the first named person comes to, or the first individual person comes to Christ. Up until Acts 8, it's all crowds, 3,000, 5,000, etc. You get to Acts chapter 8, Philip is preaching in Samaria. Many are coming to Christ when the angel comes to Philip and says, leave Samaria and go to the desert road. And Philip might have said, what's on the desert road? Just go to the desert road. But I'm preaching to thousands of people here in Samaria. Go to the desert road. And Philip left and went to the desert road. And when he got there, there was the Ethiopian, you remember, in his chariot, going back to Ethiopia, having been to Jerusalem, uh, and had an open copy of the book of Isaiah on his knee, reading it, trying to make sense of it. And the spirit said to Philip, go and join that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot, jumped on board, saw the man reading from the book of Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone tells me? And so Philip told him and led him to Christ, baptized him there, and he went on to Ethiopia. And there's a record of a church in Ethiopia from the very earliest days, perhaps from this very man who went back to Ethiopia here with the gospel. Now, in that story, you've got three elements at work. We've got what I'll call a seeking soul, which is the Ethiopian. You've got a, what I'll call a committed Christian, which is Philip, 
in Samaria, and in between them you've got what I'll call a guiding guard, guiding Philip to connect with the Ethiopian eunuch. So SS, seeking soul, CC, committed Christian, GG, guiding guard, and it is as Philip is preaching in Samaria that the Spirit of God recognizes in this Ethiopian an open, hungry heart, longing to find God, and so he says to Philip, Philip, I want you to leave Samaria and go and meet this man on the desert road. And I think it's remarkable, it says, uh, in, in Acts chapter uh, 8, it says that the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. Go, so. Philip didn't argue. And I'll tell you why. Because Philip was not committed to evangelism. Philip was committed to God. If Philip was committed to evangelism, he would have stayed in Samaria and said, no, no, this is what I'm doing. I've got this evangelistic great revival that's going on. But he's committed to God, and God took him, put him in the right place at the right time with the right person, and led him to Christ. In Acts chapter 9, the next chapter, you've got another seeking soul. His name is Saul of Tarsus, the enemy of the church, who was out to destroy Christians in Damascus. And he met with Jesus on Damascus Road. He was convicted on the Damascus Road. He was not converted on the Damascus Road. Because down the road was a, was a committed Christian called Ananias. And the guiding God said to the committed Christian, there's a seeking soul sitting in a house on Straight Street in Damascus. His name is Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go and speak to him. And Ananias, led by the guiding God, came to the seeking soul, Saul of Tarsus, and... Uh, uh, led him to Christ because he said, be baptized, wash away your sins. And the Holy Spirit came to indwell uh, Saul of Tarsus. So his sins hadn't been washed away. He was not indwelt by the Spirit until Ananias came to speak to him. This is why I say he was convicted on the Damascus Road, but he was not converted until Ananias came to him in the house in Damascus. So here again, you've got a seeking soul. And uh, nobody else would have recognized it. They saw this man as an enemy of the gospel. But God knew he was seeking and searching to find God himself. He just thought that Christians had got it all wrong and were opposed to the Judaism that he had been trained in. And God, knowing his heart, sends this committed Christian to bump into this seeking soul and lead him to Christ. In Acts chapter 10, the next chapter, you've got, a, you've got a seeking soul called Cornelius, centurion, a Gentile, not even a Jew, and a good man. And uh, down the road from Caesarea, down the road in Caesarea, from where uh, uh, Cornelius was, was a committed Christian called Peter. And the Spirit of God gave Peter a dream about a net let down from heaven with lots of unclean animals in it. And, and the Old Testament describes these unclean animals. Uh, and he was told, rise and eat. No, no, I don't eat things that are unclean. Rise and eat. No, 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 I don't eat things that are unclean. Peter, rise and eat. And Peter sat there waking up for his dreams, saying there's something in this about unclean things being acceptable. I wonder what it is. And then there was suddenly a knock on his door. And the knock on his door was some people from Cornelius' household. Cornelius had been told in a dream, send for Peter. Down in, uh, actually, Peter was in Joppa. Uh, Caesar, uh, Cornelius was in Caesarea. And uh, Peter went up to 
to, to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, normally regarded as unclean until now, and he led him to Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And the point is, you've got a seeking soul, Cornelius, you've got a committed Christian, Peter, you've got a guiding God who brings them together. That's in Acts chapter 10. Seeking soul, soul of Tarsus, committed Christian, Ananias, a guiding God bringing them together in Acts chapter 9. You've got a seeking soul, the Ethiopian, a committed Christian, uh, Philip, and a guiding God bringing them together in Acts chapter 8. And this is the principle, I suggest to you, that Jesus is alluding to here when he says, you open your eyes and look, the harvest is open, there's plenty to do. It's the workers of the few, but don't just run off and try and reach the masses under your own scheming and strategy. Ask the Lord of the harvest to put you in the right place at the right time with the right people, and he will, and he does. And it's one of the most remarkable things when you make yourself available. You wouldn't believe who you bump into in all kinds of unexpected ways. When uh, I had that experience, you know, with Stuart Briscoe at Manchester, I came back home a little while later, and just before I got home, my brother, who I had an old battered of card, lent it to him, and he had borrowed it, and coming up a narrow country road where we lived, the roads were very narrow and windy, and uh, he came around a corner, and a guy coming the other way, they, they, they hit. So he called me and said, look, I've had an accident in your car, uh, I think I was stopped and he hit me, but he thinks he was stopped and I hit him, so we're not sure what to do about it. I said, I'll be home in a couple of days. We'll go and sort it out with him. So I got home. We went to his house. He lived in the next village. We're in a rural area. And I didn't know him, but uh, I uh, knew of his wife. I'd, I'd met her in a different context. Got to the house. We talked about the car. Couldn't agree exactly what. So it's basically 50-50. And... Um, Then his wife said to me, I haven't seen you around lately. And I said, no. She said, where have you been? I said, I've been in a Bible school. She said, what are you doing in a Bible school? I said, I've been studying the Bible. And uh, she said, what are you studying? So we talked a bit about it. And I found in this lady a hungry heart. And before long, she came to Christ and she was baptized and... uh, took a stand for Christ. But isn't that amazing? I've been trying to reach people back at home with my friends. We weren't getting very far. We didn't seem to get very far. But, but suddenly I say, Lord, it's not trying to reach everybody. It's being asking the Lord of the harvest to put me in the harvest field. I don't know where the harvest field is, but I trust you to put me in the right place at the right time with the right people. And I can just imagine God looking down from heaven and seeing that man and his wife coming down the road in their car and saying, that lady is hungry. She needs, she's ready to hear the gospel. I need to introduce her to a Christian. Oh, here's one coming. And they met on the road (laughs) and uh, wrecked my car. Uh, But it was a means of getting in car. I don't recommend it as a form of personal evangelism because it might be dangerous. But the principle is there. You see, God, who is it you want me to speak to? Now, of course, some of us sow the seeds. That's a privilege we have of sowing seed. The life is in the seed that we have sown. Other people are involved in watering the seed and it begins to germinate. Other people involved in the harvest. One sows, one waters, one harvest, says Paul to the Corinthians. There's no special merit for those who reap the harvest over against those who sow the seed. My background is in farming. If you don't sow seed, there's no harvest. So it's all as important as each other. 
And sometimes we sow seed and don't know what happens. We just, as long as the seed is good seed, we know there's life in the seed. And when the circumstance and the soil change, it's able to germinate and, and, and come to life. And there are so many wonderful opportunities that the Lord will have is knows that are available to us if we trust him, look to him and say, Lord, I'm available. I'm not going to go running around. I'm just going to trust you to bring me in contact with the right people, the right place, right time. Unexpectedly sometimes. A while ago, I came home from uh, work when I was working at the church. I came home one evening and uh, we live on a street. Don't ever been on that street, but it's, uh, we know roughly what people look like on that street. And my wife said to me, you know, a couple down the end of the road, and I knew who they were. She said, uh, the wife uh, apparently had a heart attack last night and died. I thought, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I suddenly felt in my heart, I should go and speak to the man, the husband, and tell him I'm sorry his wife had died. But I didn't. I was busy and I, I, I didn't. Some weeks later, I took one of my kids out for breakfast and went into this little breakfast restaurant. It was a new one, and there were little tables seating two people here, two here, just in a row. And we sat down to chat, my, my uh, daughter and I. There was a man next to us on his own, and I glanced across and I thought, I recognize that man. I think that's the man who lives down our street. That's the man whose wife died, I think. I wasn't sure. So I said hello to him, good morning, and he said the same, and I said, uh, do you live on, I named our street, he said, uh, yes, I do. I said, yeah, I think your wife passed away recently. He said, yes. I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. I heard that she'd, she died. How are you doing? He said, it's not easy. He said, I come here on a Saturday morning to get a decent breakfast. I'm not very good at cooking stuff. He had a son and a daughter who lived around the area in some way. And I said, you come here every week? He said, yes. I said, would you mind if I join you sometime? If I'm free on a Saturday morning, I'd love to come and have breakfast. I'd like a good breakfast too. He said, sure, I'd love you to. So a couple weeks later, I turned up and sure enough, he was there. And we got chatting, got to know him. He knew nothing about me. I knew nothing about him. We began to talk and, and what interested us. And uh, we, we agreed to meet again. And uh, he had told me that he loved Nostradamus. Are you familiar with that 14th, 15th century psychic, a prophet, whatever he was, and uh, I told him I was interested in Jesus Christ, and so he, we agreed that I would read one of his books on Nostradamus, and he would read a book I'd give him, which was Basic Christianity by John Stott, and uh, we'd meet for breakfast, and we'd discuss each chapter of these books, you see, one chapter each week. I wasn't free every week, so we did that, and after a number of weeks, we got to the towards the end of uh, basic Christianity. And he said, I knew there'd be a catch coming. I said, what do you mean? I knew he'd eventually say, you gotta do something. I said, well, you do, don't you? He said, I suppose so, but I'm not ready for that. I said, okay, that's, that's fine if you're not, but think about it and think about why you're not ready and think about why you ought to be ready, etc." And we had a good chat, we, we got on well. And, uh, when we met next time, he said, yeah, I've thought about that, and there's a prayer in this book, and I prayed the prayer. And I said, so what's happened? He said, I'm not sure. So I'll tell you what's happened. 
you know, Jesus Christ has come to live in you, etc. And his face lit up, really? He said, yeah, I didn't think I'd ever be religious. I said, no, don't ever be religious. This is a life that you've received. You're in a relationship with Christ now. And uh, so it was wonderful to see him come to Christ. But about three months after that, his name was Bruce. I came home and my wife said to me, have you heard about Bruce? I said, no. Well, apparently he died last night in almost the same way as his wife. He had a heart attack. And uh, he called the, um, the, the uh, ambulance, and w when the paramedics got there, he had already died. So, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But I'm glad to know that he came to know Christ. A couple of days later, he was knock on our door. Went to open it, and there was a young man I didn't know. And he said, uh, I, I'm the son of... Bruce, he said, I understand my dad used to meet with you for breakfast from time to time. I said, yes. He said, my dad used to talk all the time about that. And uh, he really loved those breakfasts with you. So we're going to have a funeral for him. He said, it's going to be a secular funeral uh, because none of us believe anything. Uh, so there's going to be no hymns, no prayers or anything, but just people talking about his life. Would you come tell us about the breakfast you have with my dad? I said, I'd love to, on one condition, that I'm the last speaker. He said, well, yeah, sure, okay, you can speak at the end. So I went, and was in a, a, a big room, and it was just uh, people sitting around, getting up saying, you know, Bruce did this, and everybody laughing. Yeah, Bruce used to say this, and people remember things about him. And then his son got up and said, you know, the last year or so of my dad's life, he used to have breakfast with a new friend, and uh, he used to talk about these breakfast quarters, he used to talk about things. And uh, his breakfast with this guy, Charles Price, over here, I'm going to ask him to come and talk about his breakfast with my dad. So I got up. Nobody there knew me at all anyway. And uh, I told one or two funny things I knew about him that he told me about himself. And uh, then I began to talk about what our conversations were about and got around, of course, to talking about Jesus Christ and uh, knowing him and experiencing him. And I said, you know, just about a month ago, Bruce told me he'd invited Jesus Christ to be his savior, his Lord, and his life. And the coffin was over here. And I said, you know, most of us here may think that Bruce is in this coffin, but he isn't. His body is there, but that's not Bruce. Bruce right now is alive in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's alive forever. I hope you'd be willing to believe that. And I sat down. There was a dead silence, you know, not a, not a whisper. And so then his son got up and said, well, that's it. It's over now because was, I was the last speaker. Go and get some sandwiches and whatever was going on. And it's interesting, about six people came to me uh, that morning and said, can I have breakfast with you sometime? <laughs> but the thing is, you see, the Spirit of God whispered in my heart when Bruce's wife died, go and see him, and I didn't. And he graciously gave me a second opportunity in that restaurant to meet him and talk to him. The adventure is saying, well, I'm available to you. What is it? Where is it you want me to be? And just have that as a disposition and trust him because that's the principle Jesus is teaching here. Ask the harvest is plentiful, yes. Not run out then into the harvest. Of course, we, I, I'm not saying we don't go out and 
mass engagement with people, but as we do so, look for and trust God for the people whose hearts have been prepared by him in whatever way they have been prepared. And God is at work in people's lives. You know, I quoted last night, Jesus saying to the disciples in John 4, you know, others have done the hard work. I sent you to read the harvest, you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And there's work going on in people's lives. I mentioned my son-in-law. I mentioned the fact it was a Muslim taxi driver who said to him and his friends, don't you boys ever think about God? And that planted a seed in his heart. Out of the mouth of a Muslim taxi driver. And it began to germinate. And it began to flourish. And it's saying, Lord, where are these people? Who are these people whose hearts you have prepared? And you actually bump into them with frequency if your eyes are open and your heart is engaged with vision and compassion and then intercession. And I believe that that intercession element, ask the Lord of Harvest, that it is probably the first area in which God works in our hearts if he's ever going to use us in any particular way. I remember when I was young, going to a farewell event for a missionary, going out to India for the first time from England. And she gave her testimony. And she said, two years ago, some missionary from a hospital in India came to speak at our church, she said. And she asked us to pray that God would send more workers to this hospital, doctors, nurses, and so on. She was a nurse, this lady. She said, so I, I prayed that God would send workers to that hospital, and I prayed for two years. She said, and then suddenly God said to me, it's you that is the answer to this prayer. And she is still there today. I had an email from her only just in the last three weeks. She's still there today. But it began by God giving her a burden to pray. I think the things you pray for are the ways in which God is going to use you and going to lead you. When I was 18 years of age, I put a map of the world on my wall. And I've had a map of the world on the wall ever since. It used to be on my bedroom wall. When we got married, my wife didn't like that. So I went on to another wall. And uh, onto my study wall in my office of the church, I had a, always had a map of the world. When I was in my teens, I would stand and look at this map of the world, and there were names I'd never heard of and places and small. I wonder what goes on there. I wonder what goes on. Look at some little town down in Argentina or somewhere. And uh, I used to stand in front of that map, and I, I would pray for parts of the world I knew nothing about. Not, not deep prayer, just say, Lord, I don't know what's going on in that place. But thank you, this is part of uh, your world that you love and so on. I didn't have any expectation of traveling at that stage. It's been my privilege to preach in more than 100 countries in the world. And it was only just a couple years ago, I, I suddenly thought, you know, I used to pray for these places. And totally unexpectedly, years later, I'm in these places. And I think that the first thing God does in our hearts is give us a compassion to pray. And people say to me, as often I talk to people, you know, I, I believe God wants me in ministry. Uh, I'm not sure what I should be doing. I say to them, who are you praying? What are you praying for? Who are you praying for? And if they say, well, you know, nothing in particular, I, I know they will do nothing in particular. I know they'll still be there five years later 
waiting for something to do. Then they say, you know, I've been praying for so-and-so. My burden has been so-and-so. I said, it's most likely God will lead you in the area in which you've been interceding. It's most likely. I remember reading the biography of Billy Graham. And, uh, of course, he passed away recently. And uh, I reread his story. I had the great privilege of going to his funeral. And uh, reread his story. When he was a young man, he used to pray for the world, had a burden for the world. Young man from North Carolina, never been anywhere, particularly at that stage, except to college. And uh, he, he said, and this was a biography written by John Pollock back in the 1960s, so way back. He said, as I prayed for the world, I would see in my mind's eye stadiums full of people listening to the gospel. He said, I never, ever saw myself as the preacher, but I saw the day will come when people will gather like that to hear the gospel. <coughs> and of course, he became the man who was, at the, who was the preacher in those situations. In, interse in intercession, God writes on our hearts often what it is he wants us to do. Harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. Not go therefore, pray therefore. Lord will harvest will send workers into his harvest field. The People's Church, we have a big wall and we have a map of the city of Toronto with lots of detail on it. We have another section of the big map of the world. And we say to people, just go and stand in front of the city of Toronto, see where you live and just pray for it. Look at parts of the city you don't know. And uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I would venture to say that when the day comes when we know the real story, it's the people who stopped, looked at that map, and prayed for the people God has used. I think that is the process. And prayer doesn't often follow the work of God. It, it makes possible the work of God by our own intercession. So, vision, open your eyes and look. Compassion, we're not motivated by obedience, we're motivated by love. And intercession, ask the Lord to put you in the part of the field that is ripe. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful that you have not just given us the great commission and then gone away and left us to try and figure it out, but you are the most active participant in the whole exercise because you as Lord of the harvest are putting us in the right place at the right time with the right people. Thank you for those from this church and those supported by this church who implanted themselves in Myanmar, in uh, Kazakhstan, in Uganda, in Solomon Islands, and other parts of the world. Thank you for your directing of their paths to bring them into these places and using them there. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who are back here and you want people here as much as there, there will be people who are tuned to your heart in prayer, allowing you to lay on our hearts people, places, 
where you want to work and us to be part of that work. And I pray we'll be willingly obedient. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.